Take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 4. Kids, head to the kids' table. <clears throat> I hadn't done any celebrations in a while, so I was thinking this week, all right, what are, what are some celebrations? And here's the, the celebration I came up with this week. Isaiah 43, 19. That's just, just, it's just where I was. I, look, I'm about to do something new, even now. It is coming. Do you not see it? Indeed, I will make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. Now, uh, it's no celebration that, that Tom will be leaving us and, and Amy eventually will follow him. Because as Wanda Hall said last Sunday, and also, if you're on Facebook, you saw me post this. As Wanda Hall said at the end of the service last Sunday... You're, you're losing your right hand, and I am. When, when, when Tom leaves the staff, I will be losing my right hand, and honestly, when Amy goes, I will have lost the rest of my right arm. Uh, it's just the way it's, it's going to be. But it's still a celebration, because it's a celebration that God is working. God's working in our church. Now, it, it, it's, it's a bit antithetical, I think, for us to, to think, wait, how is God working if he's taken people out? Well, we don't get to question, as we're going to see, how God works. But the fact that he is working is what we should celebrate. And if he's working and that means people leave to go to different ministries, that actually should excite us. I mean, it should excite us that, that Tom and Amy, in, in their 20 years here, God used to, to train them, to prepare them for this next ministry. He used all of you in some way, and I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here for Tom. Uh, he used all of you in some way to prepare him for this next step in his ministry. That's a celebration. God is working. He, 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 he planned this a long time ago. God didn't, he surprised us, but he didn't surprise him. Um, that he didn't surprise God. He's been working on this a while. And it was, I, I take no credit for Isaiah 43, 19 being the, the verse for a new week. But long before we had any inkling that we would be in such a year of transition, this was the verse that God gave me to share with y'all for Renew Week. And I, 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 I'm a little scared, actually. <laughs> what else does this verse mean, God? Um, uh, you know, let's, this is good. This, this is enough new thing you're doing as far as I'm concerned. But you know what? It, it, it's God's deal. It's not my deal. So God is working. So we celebrate in our sadness, in our disappointment. It's okay, y'all. All the emotions, we, we had them. If you're mad at Tom and Amy right now, sorry, it's, that's, that's an acceptable emotion. Don't hang out there, but that's okay. If you're sad now, you've moved past anger, I don't know what the stages of grief are, but go through them all because it's okay. We, we, I, I found out about this two weeks before Christmas. If you all remember when we went to Meridian, we found out the Thursday or the Tuesday before we went to Meridian. So early in December, we knew that this was coming. So we've had a little time to, to process this. The rest of you, not as much. So all the stuff, it's okay. 
it's okay to feel those things. So, so go for it. Um, that's all right. That's not my message this morning. I could have preached an entire sermon on that, but uh, uh, I'll, I'll hold off uh, on that. This morning, we see from Daniel chapter 4 and the story of uh, his testimony in chapter 4 that our success isn't ours. It's not our success. Now, this is, is countercultural. As a matter of fact, this is why, or, or this message, or this passage continues that theme of uh, Daniel faithfulness out of place. Because this is a message for those out of place. We are out of place. All believers are out of place. As I told you uh, early on, we, this world is not our home. This is not our kingdom. We're, we're of another world. We're ambassadors from another country to this land, to this world we live in. This, this isn't it for us. We are out of place. And the culture we live in, especially in the West, in America, as it relates to this passage, uh, we're out of place because our culture says that we are what we do. I, I, I did it this morning. I, I was talking to somebody in the foyer and I, I, to make conversation. Where do you work? It's, it's small talk. It's curiosity. It's learning stuff about people. But that's not who that person is. Where he works, what he does, where I work, what I do. We, we, but we, we say that, that, that what we are, or we are what we do, or the culture says, do more to get more. Work harder so you can have more. Make more so you can buy more. Build bigger so you can store more. There's a Bible story about that, by the way. It doesn't end well for that guy. So, you know, that, that's what the culture tells us. The culture tells us to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's important for us to be self-reliant, especially in Western culture, especially in American culture. We, we, we are told by our culture to brag about the fact that I built that. Whatever, I built this company from this to that. I, I, I built that chicken coop. I, I, in my case, I changed that light bulb. Actually, I didn't. Jim Milton came over and changed it for me, but that's beside the point. Um, I had sense enough to go who, to whom he who had the wisdom. So we, but, that, but that's what culture says, right? That, that you did it. Good for you. And, and, and we've actually taken that to such extremes that we have participation trophies. You, you didn't do anything special, but you did something. Here's a trophy. You didn't quit. Yay, you. You know, we're out of place. This isn't our home. Because inevitably those ideas, those, that, that culture creates pride. And pride is a challenge to God's sovereignty every time. Doesn't matter what we have pride in. And I'm, I'm going to point out in a little bit that, that there is an acceptable pride. It, we, we, we have... There is a negative pride. There's a positive pride. For example, when, when my kids do something impressive, I'm proud of them. 
uh, you know, they, good for them. They, I, 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 that's a, I believe that's a good pride. I think Jesus has that. I think God has that for us. When, when his children, it's a natural emotion to be proud of, of your own kids or family members or friends. When, when something good happens, yay, man, I'm proud of you. That's, that, we're not talking about that sort of pride. We're talking about the pride that's arrogance. The pride that says, I built it. The pride that says, I did it. The pride that says, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps or whatever. That is a challenge to God's sovereignty. It's implying that I did something outside of God. At least we would say no as believers, but the truth is we easily get over in that direction. And it's, uh, it's pride that drives all these things. The the I built it, that we are what we do, and, and, and uh, it's self-perpetuating, pride is. The more proud I am, the more prideful I become. That, that seems obvious, right? But, but when we start adding pride, we get more prideful. We don't think of it that way, though. We think, well, I'm just proud of this achievement. I'm proud of that achievement. But it's, it's layering. We're going to see in this passage, because as I said a couple of weeks ago, the theme of Daniel is God's sovereignty from beginning to end. Uh, human kingdoms, uh, heavenly kingdoms, earthly kingdoms, heavenly kingdoms. It's all about God. Uh, it, 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 and that sovereignty that we're going to talk about, that we're going to see this morning, is assurance and comfort. It is assurance that God is sovereign and I'm not. It's a comfort that, that God is sovereign over my life and I am not. Now, we can be trapped here by saying, well, if God's sovereign, then the, the good, the bad, the every decision, then everything that happens is controlled by him and happens because he decreed it. And if, if we're not careful, we get into this idea of fatalism, like it just, everything's going to end bad, or um, it, 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 we have to understand that God's sovereignty does not remove our accountability for our actions. We're still accountable. God's sovereign, but we're still accountable. But it does remove responsibility for outcomes. If I'm faithful and I do what I'm supposed to, the outcome is left up to God, not to me. I'm not sovereign. God is. Notice, though, that I had to be faithful so, as we move through this passage, we need to think in those terms. God is sovereign, I'm not, yet I am accountable. We're going to start in verse 25 of Daniel chapter 4. Our connect group started in 28. I wanted to move back just a little bit and start in verse 25. And, and Jaden, I think I forgot to put the verses in there, so uh, don't worry about that. Um, Hopefully you have your own copy of God's Word because this morning it won't be on the screen. Uh, that's my fault. Starting in verse 25, Daniel is interpreting a dream that Neb has had. He says, You will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals. You will feed on grass like cattle and be drenched with dew from the sky for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and He gives them to anyone He wants. As for the command to leave the tree stump with its roots, your kingdom will be restored to you as soon as you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, 
May my advice seem good to you, my king. Separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right and from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. Perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Neb's telling this story now in the third person. At the end of the 12 months, as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, the king exclaimed, Is this not Babylon the Great that... I have built to be a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory. While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that the kingdom has departed from you. You'll be driven away from people to live with the wild animals, and you will feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. And he gives them to anyone he wants. At that moment, the message against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, and my sanity returned to me. Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified him who lives forever. For his dominion is an, ever, is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, What have you done? At that time my sanity returned to me, and my majesty and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and my nobles sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom, and even more greatness came to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of the heavens, because all his works are true, and his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. Now, depending on who you read, some will say that Nebuchadnezzar became a believer at that point. Not just a believer in God's power, but a follower of God, a follower of Yahweh, as Daniel and uh, the boys would have been. Possibly. There's still a lot of I and me in that last, uh, those last couple of verses. So, whether he does or not, it doesn't change the message of the passage, because this passage is not so much about Nebuchadnezzar as it is about God, just like the whole rest of the Bible. It's all about God. And Nebuchadnezzar learns that. We learn a number of things from this passage. There are a lot of lessons about how our success isn't ours in this passage. The the first thing we learn is way back in verse 25, and it's that we aren't in charge. The first four or five of the things we learn are the negative. Negative meaning we aren't, we're not, that don't. It's going to have that word not in there. And the first one we see here is that we aren't in charge. Verse 25, uh, he uh, is told by Daniel, you will be driven away from people. Live with the wild animals. You will feed on grass, blah, blah, blah. All this stuff, blah, 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 not because it's not important. But what I want you to hear is until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms, and he gives them to anyone he wants. Who is the ruler? God. Nobody else. And he's talking to a pagan king, because clearly the, 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 uh, the whole food thing in chapter 1 
didn't truly change Nebuchadnezzar's heart. If he even heard about that, even if, if he even learned about all of that that had gone on. Clearly the whole statue thing uh, didn't change Nebuchadnezzar's heart. Or, uh, yeah, the statue didn't, the, the, the dream and the interpretation of the dream didn't change his heart. The, the statue then that he built, apparently based on the dream that was supposed to keep him from building a statue, but whatever. Um, the statue and then the boys in the fire, he acknowledges some things about God, but that didn't change his heart. And we get to chapter 4, and we see his heart is still all about himself. And this pagan king, then, is called to the carpet by God for being and acting like a pagan. If God cares about how pagan kings who don't follow him act, if God rules over pagan kings, then certainly he rules over his blood-bought children. Just the same, just as strongly. Leaders and leadership are his. In churches, just as in the world, they are all God's. God is in charge. No matter the size of the, the kingdom, no matter the size of the group, no matter the size of the business, God is in charge. Your success isn't yours because you are never in charge or in control. That's our first lesson. Your success isn't yours because you were never in charge or in control to begin with. But I did all the... No, you didn't. You did. You thought you did. But you, you, you did things. You performed actions. But you were never truly in charge or in control. God was. Number two lesson we learn from Nebuchadnezzar. Number one, we aren't in charge. Number two, we don't own it. It's not ours. Verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar learns that. As for the command to leave the tree stump with its roots, your kingdom will be restored to you as soon as you acknowledge that heaven rules. Your kingdom will be restored to you. God's saying, I'll give back that thing you think is yours. Because it's not yours, it's mine. And when the time comes, when I believe you have learned your lesson, I will give that kingdom back to you. I will give what's mine back to you. The, the New Testament, Old Testament too, but especially the New Testament, calls us stewards of what God gives us. And we see in this passage God's judgment coming on Nebuchadnezzar, but not judgment uh, for punishment and destruction, but judgment designed to correct and redirect. God's not saying, I'm going to rip your kingdom from you, and you're never getting it back just so I can show how powerful I am and how weak you are. No, he says, I'm going to take this from you for a time so that you will be corrected. You will change your heart and turn after me. It's a lesson that Israel learned the hard way and had been warned about over and over and over and over, all the way back to the time of the judges, right after Joshua came in, led the people into the promised land, they divided it up, and over and over and over, Judges says, and the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. 
And we get to kings, and, and Samuel is a great leader, and David is a good king, and Solomon's a pretty good king, and, 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 and well, we leave Saul out of there on purpose. And then, then because of their sin, the kingdom is ripped apart, and the kings over and over do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And the, the, the message over and over from the prophets is, you better turn back, you better turn back, you better turn back. And if you don't, destruction is coming. And it's a promise that goes all the way back to Abraham. And in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom, after they've split, the northern kingdom of Israel is taken off. They disappear. They're done. 586 B.C., around the time probably that Nebuchadnezzar is doing this, chapter 4 of Daniel, Judah, Israel, uh, uh, Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem is destroyed, 586, and, and, and Israel no longer exists. The, they learned the hard way, and that's why Daniel is even in Babylon. But even there, Jeremiah promises, Ezekiel promises, Daniel promises, even in exile, God is calling his people back to them. The judgment was to correct and to redirect the kingdom, the relationship with God, the, the, the selection of Israel was not theirs. Israel thought they were something because God had chosen them. Israel was only something because God had chosen them. Now it sounds like I said the same thing, but in the head, my head it was totally different. They thought there was something worthy uh, something of value of them, so God chose them. God was looking around and said, oh, now Israel's pretty good. I'm going to build them up. When in fact, the only thing that made them special was God had chosen them. But they then took that specialness and said, aren't we special? And what they should have said was, isn't God special? And so they learned this lesson, that their, their specialness wasn't theirs. Their success as a kingdom, sitting at the crossroads there where Israel sits, the Mediterranean on one side, roads going out east on the other, roads running north and south into Egypt and northern kingdoms. They were at a prime real estate location. That was their spot. That was a spot that God had given them, not a spot that they had earned or won. Their success wasn't theirs. This is the same lesson behind our tithes and offerings. Our finances aren't ours. The money we make, you make. It's not yours, it's God's. God says, I'm going to let you keep 90% of my money. You just give me 10% back and any more that I ask for along the way. And I'll make sure that whatever I leave you is exactly what you need. Because we recognize it's not ours. Your success isn't yours because it doesn't belong to you. None of it. Number three, the lesson here is that it isn't for us. Our success isn't for us. Verse 27, we get the reason why the kingdom's being taken away. Daniel tells him, my advice to you, king, is that you separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right, not sinning, and from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. Stop sinning and provide justice 
justice, mercy to the needy. Do those things that you should do as king. See, his lack of concern for his people was a sin. His lack of concern for other people was a sin. His focus on himself was a sin. Paul echoes this, right, in, in Philippians. It's chapter 2, 13 and 14, where we're told to do things with other people in mind more than ourselves put ourselves on the back burner. I mean, it's what Jesus said, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And, and we want to be special, so we should be, uh, uh, lift others up as special. See, it isn't for us. Our success isn't for us. Nebuchadnezzar's success wasn't for him because God gives success for us to use it for his glory not for ours. And, and Nebuchadnezzar is going to say, talk about his own glory here in just a minute. And boy, that's, that's, it's, it's those words when God steps in. My glory is when God says something. God gives success for, our uh, for his glory, not for our glory. God gives our finances for his glory. God gives our material wealth for his glory. God gives us our talents and our abilities for his glory. Even pagan kings are expected to implement God's caring kingship. Right? Even pagan kings. In the New Testament, Paul is going to, uh, I believe it's in writing to the, to the Corinthians, <clears throat> he's going to make the statement that y'all, y'all got things going in the, on in the church, even the pagans think are awful. I mean, y'all are impressing them with how sinful you are. And, and because God even expects pagans to have a certain uh, level of morality basic goodness. So if, if that's the case, how much more does he expect his people to have the same? Nebuchadnezzar's wealth, pagan wealth, was to be used for the good of others. And that doesn't matter if you're Jeff Bezos of Amazon, if you're Bill Gates of Microsoft, or if you're Warren Buffett of like everything else in the world. I don't even know what he does. He just makes money, invests, and, and does it. Their wealth in God's economy is to be used for the good of others. How much more then are we as God's children required to do the same with our success? And you're thinking, well, I'm not that successful, Michael. Let me compare you to some other countries in the world. And we'll see how successful you, you, you are by comparison. See, your success isn't yours because you weren't in control, because it, you don't own it, and because it wasn't given to you for you. Your success was given to you for others. Verse 30 tells us that we, that we don't build it. We didn't build our success. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is going to learn. 
Nebuchadnezzar looks around this palace. It's probably the second palace he's built in Babylon. This is the new and improved one because the other one was just too small or whatever. And he says, is this not Babylon the great that I have built to be a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory? And God's answer is, nope, it's not. You didn't build it. We didn't build it. Neb looked around and, and, and saw all that he had done, and we can easily do the same. We as a church can do the same. We can look around and say, I gave money for that thing, that piece of furniture. I, I donated that item. I volunteered my time to do that. <clears throat> I can look around and say, I led this. I can look at the last year and a half of, of, of rebuild and go, man, I did all right. I did a pretty good job. And it, 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 it's nice to hear some, some attaboys, but heaven forbid any of us think we did any of this. I didn't create five and a half million dollars to rebuild all this. I certainly didn't do the work that the uh, project manager did. I wouldn't be here now if I'd had to do all that. And I'm talking about probably physically. I'm not just talking about I wouldn't be in this church. I'm talking about I'd be in a grave. Mainly because Etta probably would have killed me. Came close enough a few times anyway. We can look around and we can say, look at what we did. We can look at our past as a church. <clears throat> There's not a, a single nail, a, a, a piece of paper, a... a uh, a, a pen, a, um, a cup of coffee that somebody didn't give for. Over the past hundred and something years, we've, it's just been building on itself. And there's nothing wrong, as I said earlier, with joy and healthy pride in what God has used us to do. And we, we look around and we see God used us to do some great things to, to, to build this church along the way, to, to do all the stuff that we see, but it's not about us. We didn't build it. God did. And that healthy pride, that joy devolves into ownership or unhealthy pride, arrogance, and when it does, it has devolved into sin, and then we may devolve, like Nebuchadnezzar did, with it, because we've forgotten the Lord. We look at it all and we say, haven't we done great? And, and here's the concern I have about moving forward. Here is the reason for Renew Week, because we get comfortable and we can very, very easily get comfortable. And, and Israel was warned through Moses long before they get to the promised land. In Deuteron Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 10 through 18, God tells them, When you eat and are full, you will bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. We've done that, right? Thank the Lord for what he has provided after Hurricane Laura. 
thank the Lord for the insurance, as bumpy as that ride may have been at times. Thank the Lord for everything he has given us. And, and God said, when, you're, when you eat and are full, when you get settled finally, when you're back to normal, you're going to thank God. But, verse 11, be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commands, ordinances, and statutes that I'm giving you today. Be careful that you don't forget, church, why you exist to begin with. Not for buildings, not for furniture, not for carpet and paint, not even for fun, entertainment, and fellowship that goes along with those things. But the statutes and ordinances we have as a church are to go to the world and make disciples. That's our job. That's why we exist. So everything we use is a tool for that. Don't forget. Be careful that you don't forget. Because when you eat, uh, when you eat and are full and build beautiful houses to live in and, and your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold multiply, boy, we like money in the bank and big budgets, don't we? We're real close sometimes to worshiping those more than we do God. When, when, when we have those things, be careful and everything else that you have increases. Be careful that your heart doesn't become proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions, a thirsty land where there was no water. He brought water out of the flint rock for you. He fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers had not known, in order to humble and test you so that in the end he might cause you to prosper. You may say to yourself, my power and my own ability have gained this wealth for me. But remember that the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth in order to confirm his covenant. Why do we gain wealth? To confirm God. Why do we have money? To worship God with it. Why does he give us things? To glorify him in order to confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is today. And I was going to leave out these last two verses. But now I'm not going to. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods to serve them and bow and worship to them, if anything becomes your idol, which buildings and ministries and budgets can, I testify against you today that you will perish. Like the nations the Lord is about to destroy before you, you will perish if you do not obey the Lord your God. This lesson is for the church. This lesson is what is told in the letters to the seven churches of Revelation. Those seven churches that no longer exist because they failed to live up to the calling. Your success isn't yours because you didn't create it. Next one, we can't keep it. We can't keep our success. Verse 32 makes that clear to us. You will be driven away from the people. You'll, be fe you'll feed on grass. 
you will have the kingdom taken away from you. As a matter of fact, this part of the verse is it actually happening. To you it is declared, but verse 31, to you it is declared that the kingdom has departed from you. I should have had verse 31 there and not verse 32. What could Neb do to stop God from taking away everything? What could he do? What was in Nebuchadnezzar's power to stay the hand of God and keep his kingdom? What could he do to reverse this at this point in the passage? Nothing. Couldn't do a thing. He had no power. We can't keep our stuff. We can't stop God from taking everything. If we get to verses 18 and 19 of, or 19 and 20 of Deuteronomy 10, or rather Deuteronomy 8, if we get to that part where it says, "If you do stop following me, I will take you will perish." If we get there, there's nothing we can do to stop the perishing. I think we've learned natural disasters can wipe away our successes. One of my greatest fears over this past year and a half, and we still, I thought we were going to get this fixed a few months ago, but we still haven't. Um, <clears throat> we still don't have wind and hail coverage on our buildings. They wouldn't cover us for that until the buildings were complete. I sent an email a couple of weeks ago. Hey, to the guy who's supposed to do it, we're done. We need this coverage. Okay, I'll be there next week. I mean, I can't come next week. I'll be there the next week. And that's the last I've heard of him. So I'll get on that Monday. But back in August, September, of course, hurricane season, I'm wondering, Woo. but then we had the storm that uh, brought some tornadoes to the area. Wasn't anything I could do but just worry all weekend because if a tornado had come through and knocked it all down, too bad. We didn't have coverage. In an instant, it all could have been gone with nothing to fix it with. It can be wiped away that easily, that quickly. And let's just assume that a natural disaster doesn't get it. Y'all, this stuff's going away someday. Every, every wall, the foundation, it's all going to be trees or another building or dirt it's going to rust. It's all going away someday. Everything that you so carefully craft at your home and, and, the, and the space that you create for your comfort, it's going to go away one day. Either it's going away or you're going away. And you know what? Someday people are going to forget you ever existed. I couldn't tell you the names of any of my two greats back. Oh, we've got some pictures, and I can dig up some records. I can find that information, but I can't tell you off the top of my head. You go back further than that, and we don't even have information for most of them. You go back far enough, and there are a whole bunch of people that we don't even know they existed. We know they did because we're here. That's about it. Life is a vapor. It, it, none of the, We can't keep any of this. And yet we fight so hard to get it, keep it, and keep it the way we want it. 
Your success isn't yours because you can't even keep it if you get it. Now, let's make a quick turn right here. I'm really going to have to fly through this. The comfort is that if our successes are not our own due to God's sovereignty, then our failures aren't our own either. If we fail and we are being obedient in our failure, the failure is not ours. The positive side of all this, no more nots. The positive side is, first of all, verse 34, God has dominion. So the pressure is off of us. We don't have to be perfect. We have to be obedient. When we accept that our success isn't ours, and if we accept that pre-insanity, before we go insane like Nebuchadnezzar did, when we accept that our success isn't ours, we understand that God has sovereign control, and we find comfort there. God has dominion. Verse 34 goes on to say, not only does he have dominion, it's everlasting dominion. God lasts forever. So we're going to turn to dirt. Everything we have ever uh, created or, or, or accumulated is going to rust. So only what we do in Christ really matters. So if God lasts forever, what we do for him and in him will last forever. When we accept that our success isn't ours, we understand that God was is and is to come and we find comfort there in doing for him we learn from nebuchadnezzar and from life that god is what is important verse 35 all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing he does what he wants with the army of heavens and the inhabitants of the earth now we are made in god's image we are precious to him we are his creation But as far as who's really important here, God is the one that's important. God is the focus of every decision and action on our part. At least he should be. God is what's important in our lives. When we accept that our success isn't ours, we understand that God is everything that matters. And we find comfort there. We see in Nebuchadnezzar's testimony, that God has all the power. There's no one that can block his hand. Who could have stopped God from taking the kingdom from Nebuchadnezzar? Nobody. Your arms are too short to box with God. Is that a song or something in the 70s? I know it's a fairly familiar phrase, but I I don't remember who who said it. Your arms are too short to box with God. You're not going to win that fight. He has all the power. You you question it, maybe, we'll get there, but he has all the power. When we accept that our success isn't ours, we understand that God cannot be thwarted by any power. Not just ours, but anybody else's. There's nothing that can overcome God's power, so we don't have to worry. We find comfort that our success isn't ours. We see that God has all the right There's no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? God doesn't mind your questions. I think God wants your questions. He wants you to come to him with your grief, your pain, your hurts. But sometimes the answer from God is quite simply, because I said so. Now as kids, we hate that answer. And as adult children of God, we still hate that answer. Because I said so. 
And that's what we have to trust because God said so. When we accept that our success is in ours, we understand that God doesn't need us as advisors. And we find comfort there. And then finally, God gets all the glory. Verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar finally realizes it. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of the heavens. If all things work for good, and Romans tells us they do, then God gets the glory in all situations, whether they are good or bad. God gets the glory. When we accept that our success isn't ours, we understand that God gets the glory no matter the outcome. And we find comfort there. Some of you this morning walk in pride, like Nebuchadnezzar mentions in verse 37. He says at the end, he is able, God is able to humble those who walk in pride. Some of us walk in pride. You may walk in pride that you've done something great for God. You may walk in pride that you've done something in and of yourself. You may walk in pride that you aren't like those other sinners. My sins aren't as bad as those others. Some of you walk in pride this morning, and it's the worst pride. The pride that you think you don't need Jesus. All sin will send you to hell. The pride that says, I don't need Jesus, will keep you from heaven. It will keep you from forgiveness that will take care of your sin. The pride that says, you're not that bad. Oh, I'm okay. I'm going to get to heaven someday. The pride that says, you can do it on your own. Well, I'm just going to pull myself up by my moral and spiritual bootstraps. I'll just be good enough. If Yeah, they're going to let me in when I get to the pearly gates. I'm going to make them. Okay. Pride that you can do it later. I've got time to that. I don't, need, I don't need that today. I'll do that some other time. Pride that you just need a little religion. Oh, I don't need to go crazy and be baptized and all that. I just need a little religion to you know, kind of keep me lit. Pride that says you walked an aisle one time. You got dipped. We dip dogs too. Kills fleas but doesn't do anything for their souls. You got dipped. Or, or you have your name on a church roll. Pride that says, my name is somewhere. It may be in a membership book, but if it's not in the book of life, it doesn't matter. Pride is a sin that Jesus has bought your forgiveness for. But the pride of depending on yourself is the thing that will keep you from coming to Jesus. So this morning, you need to turn from your pride. Follow Christ. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. You can have salvation from your sin. Pride is really just one of the many sins you'll be saved from. But, as I said, it is the sin that will keep you most commonly from turning to Jesus. But If you admit you're a sinner, you believe that Jesus, who he says he is, that he has eternal life, that the cross took your sin, and you trust in him, accept that salvation from him, you will then be saved. And I pray this morning you will turn from your pride and turn to Jesus. Whether you're a believer that's walking in the pride of your own accomplishments 
or you're a, an unbeliever that says, I can do it on my own. This morning, turn from your pride and turn to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you, <clears throat> that pride is no barrier for you. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a horrible barrier for us. It is a difficult wall for us to break down. We can't, just like every other sin. We can't control it. But in Christ, through your power, through your Holy Spirit, you can. You can get through, to the, through the pride this morning to the one who thinks they don't need your salvation or because that they've got a name somewhere on a roll something, they did some things, they're, they're fine. God, you can break through that pride. You can draw them by your Holy Spirit, to trust Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would do that this morning. They would respond in faith. They would turn to you. But God, as believers, <clears throat> we know that our pride as believers, our pride in our belief, our, our pride in our salvation, our pride in our discipleship, our pride in our abilities, whatever it is, our pride can create a barrier between us and you, a barrier among our fellowship of believers, a barrier between us and our opportunity to share the gospel, the, 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 the wall-destroying gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, Lord, I pray that you would tear down those walls of pride, the cities that we've built, that we think we've built, the successes we think we've had, you would show us they're not ours. Nothing, none of it is ours, so that our lives fully Show dependence on you. So those who think they depend on themselves can see in our lives the true dependence we need is in Jesus Christ. Lord, break down the walls of pride that would keep us from salvation and that would keep us from knowing the fullness of our salvation. God, we pray for our hearts this morning to respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So you have a next step to take, every one of you, every one of us. We have a next step. Maybe you need to accept salvation through Jesus Christ. God is sovereign, and that's the way he set it up. If you want salvation, it's through Jesus. Maybe you've accepted Christ and you want to be baptized. God is sovereign, and he has said, follow in believer's baptism. Maybe you need to conform your life to Christ. Maybe pride is an issue, and you need to put that on the altar this morning. Maybe you're proud of your abilities, and, and you need to be uh, more about God's plans and God's purposes in your life. Maybe you need to join our church. Whatever your decision this morning, we want to pray with you about that decision. Tom will be down in front here on the right. We've got some men along the back that would love to pray for you, pray with you if you want to take that to them. Ultimately, though, it's between you and God. So we're going to take a few minutes. We're going to worship. We're going to let God continue to work on our hearts. And I pray as we sing to our God that he would do something great in your lives. And we would see this morning, no matter how good we've been, no matter how well we have done, it's all about God. Let's stand. Let's sing. Let's worship him this morning.